Turn to John chapter 18. We've been going through the book of John, and we've made it to the point in the book where Jesus is standing trial. He's about to be crucified. He's about to be put up on a cross and killed, not for anything that he has done, but because of the wicked things that we have done. But we're not quite there yet. At the end of chapter 18, starting in verse 38, Pilate is in the middle of interviewing, trying, uh, having a conference with Jesus. And... We've already looked a little bit at this passage. I want to go back to it one last time. And last week we saw the choices before us of whether to choose Barabbas or to choose Jesus with the exhortation that in spite of the fact that Barabbas, shockingly, is exactly what we want in our hearts, that Jesus is the choice that we must want and that we need. Well, this week, I want to look at one other statement that the Jews make. We're going to be looking at what ultimately comes down to a misapplication of Bible texts and commands and the devastating consequences that that can have. Misapplication means what? Misapplication means when you interpret something to mean something that it doesn't mean. So, uh, in a sense, you could say it's a misunderstanding. Right? But, of course, misapplications aren't necessarily misunderstandings. They can be intentional, or they can be unintentional. Either way, the consequences, the stakes are very high as we seek to read God's word and to be faithful to it. And we need to see that we face many of the same temptations that the Jews faced at this time. So please stand for the reading of God's word, starting in John 18, verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, 
Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pilate... I hope, that you can, I hope that you can feel for Pilate in this circumstance. He knows what's right. He knows the man is innocent. He's found no guilt. And he wants to release him, and yet he can't, right? And so he tries to, he tries to convince them to let Jesus go. He tries to change their thoughts. The the Jews, the Jewish leaders, those who are gathered yelling, crucify those, those who are attacking. He tries to convince them in a variety of ways to drop it, right? But what is, what is the one way that he does not step out? What is the one way he does not attempt to protect Jesus? Well, he refuses to take up the authority that he has rightfully, right? 
Even Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. He refuses to take up that authority and use it for righteousness. To stand between Jesus, the innocent, and his enemies and protect him. Right? And yet I said, I hope that you, I hope that you can see yourself in Pilate. I hope that you can feel for him. I hope that you see yourself in him. Sometimes we are tempted to defend a person like Pilate defends Jesus. And how does Pilate defend Jesus? Well, it's not true defense, is it? Rather, it's abusing a person unjustly to try to appease others. You see that? His soldiers mock and scorn him. They spit on him and hit him. They place a crown of thorns on him. They mock him with a, with a royal robe. And then he brings him out and he's like, Behold the man, and it's mocking. And he's trying to show them that Jesus isn't a threat. He's trying to get them to release him. You, you know, you can see his end that he has in mind is good. And yet, the ends do not justify the means, do they? Ultimately, he is rightfully condemned by Christians for his wickedness in letting his soldiers beat Jesus. Not just for allowing them to, to pressure him in the end to let them crucify him, right? Right? but for the abuse that he adds into the process, the wicked means that he uses to attempt a righteous end. He finds no guilt in Jesus. He sees that he is an innocent man. He desires to release him, and yet he does not have the strength to actually defend Jesus. And instead, he lets the abuse continue so as to show that he's above it all. Now, have you ever done this? Have you ever seen somebody being attacked, being, being criticized, and you desire that, they would be, that the attack would be ended? You desire that there wouldn't be any major blow-up? And so you think, well, maybe discretion is the better part of valor. I'll just, I'll just go along with these minor attacks to try to prevent the major attack. This, is, this may happen in uh, gossiping. It may happen in um, accusations and recriminations against leaders, whether spiritual or otherwise. It may be with employees talking about their boss, these kinds of attacks. You think, you know, we, we go straight to thinking about the cross and the crucifixion because it's where we're going, and that, I mean, it makes sense that we would think about that, but I want you to see that attacks don't only take place that are that drama of an actual illegal execution at the end of murder. 
There's all kinds of attacks that we see week by week and that we face decisions about what our response is going to be as we hear these attacks, as we see these attacks. And it's not enough that you desire the right thing, that, you know, that your goal is right. Pilate's goal was to get Jesus released. But that does not justify the means that he uses, does it? This is not defense. This is abuse. Now, we do the same thing with certain doctrines. And this is what the Jews do here, too. It's not Pilate only who is misguided in his attempts to pursue something that is objectively righteous. The Jews also believe themselves to be pursuing something that is objectively righteous. When they say, we have a law, they are not wrong. We have a law. And by that law, and here's, here's where they get it wrong, right? And by that law, what verse is it? Verse 7. We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. It is very easy for us to proceed from true biblical principles to false applications of those principles. To a clearly false and unbiblical declaration. This is what the Jews do here. So when they say we have a law, they're right. They do have a law. And the law is against blasphemy. Anyone who makes himself out to be the Son of God is making himself out to be God. And that's blasphemy. And yet, the hitch, of course, is that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. It seems like such a tiny little thing that it all hangs on, right? But if I, if I, if I push you to acknowledge the righteousness of their statement that those who blaspheme in such a manner to make themselves out to be God, are deserving of death. It's true. They're not wrong about the law. They're not wrong about God being a jealous God, right? Who will not share his glory or his honor with anyone else. But what we would rather do is just say, well, everything about the Jews was wrong, and then we can, you know, we can say, but we follow the Bible. 
But what I want you to see this morning is that when you say, we follow the Bible, you will be just like the Jews in starting with truth. But you could also very quickly be just like the Jews in interpreting it wrong, in applying it wrong, and end up fighting with the Lord of glory. You see how easy that would be. It's it's easy for them at any rate. The Jews are seeking to defend that doctrine. Just like Pilate was seeking to defend Jesus, the Jews are seeking to defend that doctrine that is true, that, that, that law, that command that they know, you know. It's, they're seeking to defend it, and yet, in the end, their misunderstanding, their misapplication, their refusal to see what that actually means leads them directly into wickedness. They stoop to saying, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar? The Jews would actually say this? It's a complete rejection of the whole doctrine of the Messiah in the Old Testament. If there was one thing they knew... It was that the Messiah was their king. The son of David sitting on the throne forever. How dare they say we have no king but Caesar. The ends do not justify the means. When we misapply, when we take a true statement and then we begin to fill it with false meaning, when we begin to apply it in wrong ways, what happens is it leads us immediately into this kind of wickedness. Okay? And so in a sense, you can say, just like we're told... The New Testament, by your fruits you shall know them. We can say that that's speaking of people, but we can say the same thing about doctrinal applications, okay? About interpretations of God's commands and His Word. By their fruit you shall know them. When it leads to this kind of blasphemy, we have no king but Caesar, and that is true blasphemy. Okay, when it leads to that kind of blasphemy, there's something wrong with their understanding, right? And it is what leads them directly to that statement. I want to give us a few examples of the kind of true things that we say today that are, that are easy for us to grasp onto and, and, and mean something totally unbiblical by. Okay? But first I want to talk to you kids and give you guys an example, because then it will help the parents understand what I'm talking about. Okay, kids. When your dad says, go in the basement and clean it, 
Do you know what he means? Do you know what he means? Clean up the basement? Probably means pick up all the toys, right? Clean up the basement. Clean up your room. And so, that's what you should do, right? You should go down, pick up all the toys, pick up all your clothes, all the dress-up clothes, all the tinker toys and the Legos and all the things that your dad doesn't want to step on when he walks into your room, right? And your mom, too. And probably make your bed. You know what he means, right? But if he tells you to go outside and clean, clean up the side of the house where you were drawing with chalk on the siding, does he mean the same thing? Does he mean pick up the toys off the side of the house? No, he means you've got to get some water and a brush and scrub it off, Right? So you could use a pressure washer. That'd work. You could spray off the side of the house. But if he said, now go downstairs and clean up the basement, and you took the pressure washer downstairs and started blowing water around in the basement, what do you think your dad would do? You think he'd be happy with you? No, no, he would not be happy with you. He does not want water all over the basement. He wants you to pick up the toys. You would say, but he told me to clean up the basement. I'm just doing cleaning up. We see that cleaning up means using a pressure washer. And you get a spanking anyway. Right? Now, I want you to understand that when your mom and your dad tell you to do something and you know what they mean to do anything else besides what they mean is to disobey. No matter how logical and reasonable you can make it sound. Of course, most of the time, none of you would consider actually taking a pressure washer to the basement, but I know you kids are very good at making your parents' commands means something other than they meant. It's very easy for us to justify ourselves. Well, I thought you meant... Have you guys ever said that? Well, I thought you said... Well... You knew what you were supposed to do. And so you need to do it. And it's the same with us. Same with your parents. We cannot interpret things in such a way as to give ourselves what we want. We must interpret things accurately. Right? I give it a statement I've seen and heard several times in the last couple of years. Godliness 
is not heterosexuality. You may have read that somewhere, heard somebody say that. Godliness is not heterosexuality. It's a great example of this sort of misapplication of a true principle. Okay? Because, of course, we know that godliness is not heterosexuality. Right? And yet, what do people mean when they say godliness is not heterosexuality? What they mean is that you don't even have to have a goal of somebody being heterosexual because godliness is not heterosexuality. And this is, this is to take the word of God and make it to mean exactly the opposite of what everybody knows it means when it condemns homosexuality, right? We know right and wrong, and then we insert this true phrase in between them and it's like a prism. It, it reflects the light around somehow to the opposite side, and you're looking at everything upside down on the other side. And the colors are all spread out. I'm looking through this nice, clear piece of glass. Somebody just needs to come up behind you and smack you on the back of the head, their hands in front of your eyes. Pay attention. Look at what you're looking at. See what you see, right? And the reason is because we know. We know that with homosexuality condemned, that heterosexuality is required. And that any kind of statement that's inserted as though to prove that it's not required is absurd on its face. But why would we do that? Well, you have a good goal. You gotta start, you gotta understand that the, the good goal exists, even in this circumstance, right? The good goal is to protect the doctrine of sexuality at least to a certain extent, such that we can still say that it's, it's not best for human flourishing when two men get together. If we can just protect that much. But see, this is to do exactly what Pilate does, isn't it? To abuse Christ for the sake of somehow protecting him. It doesn't work. It doesn't work any better to abuse God's teachings and doctrines on sexuality and somehow to, in some goal of somehow protecting some part of them. Calvin, in this passage, gives this great explanation. He's talking about the importance of the gospel, and he says that it would be better that the doctrine of the gospel should be buried for a time than that it should be scourged in this manner. So he's, again, he's applying it exactly the same way. He's taking the, the scourging of Jesus and he's applying it to the, to the teaching. So, so Jesus is scourged 
abused, right? So it is with the gospel that we can that we can abuse the gospel message. We can scourge it. And he says it would be better for it to be buried than that it should be scourged, for it would spring up again in spite of the devil and of tyrants. But nothing is more difficult than to restore it to its purity after having been once corrupted. And so what is he saying? He's saying that... that it's better even that you would lose the truth for a time than that you would take the truth and then scourge it, that you would take something true and then corrupt it, that you would insert this false thing into it to mean, make it mean something else. Better to lose it entirely. And not just truth, but he's actually speaking about the gospel when he says this. He says you'd be better off letting the gospel get lost for a time than to... Than to Twist it. And of course, in his context, in the middle of the Reformation, he's speaking of the twisting that has been done to the gospel by the Roman Catholic Church at that time. You understand? So what were the ways that the the gospel was twisted by the Roman Catholic Church? Well, it was to make, for example... uh, Baptism and the Lord's Supper mean and accomplish things that, it, that the Bible doesn't teach. And what were those things? Your salvation. You see? And so the, and so the truth of the gospel, the necessity of us being forgiven, the necessity of us repenting, they were, they were corrupted And faith was replaced with this corrupt mixture of works and righteousness of your own and of Christ. It's just, it, and so he says it's better that it would be lost for a time because it would spring back. The truth cannot be kept buried, but when you take it and you keep injecting it with this poison, that's the hardest thing possible to remove. And, and so it is today with the doctrine of sexuality. It's been so poisoned by so many different things, so many individual truths that we're supposedly trying to protect, and yet we abuse them on the way to protection. Better to let them die fall into the ground. They'll spring up. Another example is this statement. You can't give people commands that aren't actually in the Bible. That's legalism. Have you ever heard anybody say this or make this kind of argument? You can't give anybody, you can't tell anybody to do anything unless it's it's actually explicitly in the Bible. That's legalism. Well, is there such a thing as legalism? Yes. Must it be defended against? Yes. But should you abuse God's truth in that defense? No. And I say, here is how, you know, this statement It's true. We have a law, right? (laughs) 
And the law is that we're not going to make up our own rules because God says it's his law and you don't add to them and we don't take away from them. Right? That's the law. It's good. It's true. It's what's basically said by that statement. And yet, again, I say that this statement I've, re- I've read. Let me read it again. You, you can't give people commands that aren't actually in the Bible. That's legalism. That, that statement, that is used to prevent giving people biblical commands. It's used to prevent it. I remember being in a discussion with a man one time, a, a pastor. I was pressing him on what he meant by that. And I asked him whether Christians, whether it was biblical, whether there was any command against a Christian marrying a non-Christian. He said, oh yeah, there's, there, there's a command. Christians are to join themselves only to other believers, right? So he was willing to, to give that command to somebody, but, but then he was... Then I pressed him further and I said, okay, so... Uh, what about a Christian dating a non-Christian? Are you willing to tell them to stop? And the way he had set up his argument, he, he had to find an explicit statement in the Bible that said no Christians can't date non-Christians. So he hemmed and he hawed a little bit and said, well, no, I guess I don't have a right to tell them that. Well, this is such a, Simple. Simple misunderstanding. And yet it's not a misunderstanding, is it? Wouldn't it be nice if you only ever had to say things that were literally quotes from the Bible? It was just like, you know, you get one of those translate, those books where you look up phrases in French and, or English, and then he tells you them in French, French when you're in France. And you're, this is all I know how to say. I just look up things in here, and then I say them, and then that's, that's it. I just look up things in here, and then I say them, and I don't have to and can't say anything else aside from a direct quote from this. What's going on there? Is it defending against legalism? Well, let's, let's dive into it for a second. Is he, is he wrong? Yes, he's wrong. You, you can actually say that Christians may not date non-Christians, and, and why? Well, the Bible doesn't have any concept of dating, right? So dating is like, we have to figure out what dating means. Dating is seeking someone to marry, Right? And so to date a non-Christian is to pursue marriage with a non-Christian, right? So if it's wrong to marry a non-Christian, is it wrong to pursue marrying a non-Christian? Yes, it's wrong. It's, It's wrong by good and necessary inference. This is a theological phrase that you may hear, or you you can also 
Just understand what it means. By good and necessary inference. And it's not just by logic, okay, that I say this. Christ himself takes the meaning of the Old Testament commands and says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that any man who looks with lust upon his neighbor has committed adultery with her in his heart. And what? Is guilty. Is guilty. In other words, you know what it means when your mom says, go clean your room. Don't pretend like you don't know what it means. When when the Bible says that a Christian is not to be unequally yoked with a non-Christian, you know what it means. And you know it means more than don't put yourself in one of those wooden things that they put oxen in. Along with somebody. It's not what it means. You know what it means. And it means don't try to do it either. Don't prepare to do it. And if you can't say that, then you're not defending the Bible, you're not, and you're not defending against legalism either. You're abusing the truth for the sake of what? Your own comfort. It's nice to not have to apply anything. It's nice to not be able to recognize any good and necessary inference. But the moment you give up good and necessary inference, let me just remind you, you are giving up the Trinity. You are giving up God. Do you understand? The doctrine of the Trinity is understood through good and necessary inference. Reading the Bible and understanding what it's saying. And so, application of this command that we're not to add to the words of Scripture, right? True, command, the application. In a legalistic manner that says only literally what you can find written here, you can say, all right? The application in a legalistic manner, ironically, allows you to deny pastors and elders the ability to speak authoritatively about all kinds of things, including many sorts of disobedience and sexual immorality. And how terrible is that? We are bound by those things that flow from good and necessary inference just as we are bound by the things stated directly. If your parents tell you you can't spend the night at Fred's house because his brother's a drug dealer, it means more than you just can't spend the night at his house. You're to watch out for his brother, right? And they don't want you doing drugs, right? And all kinds of other things that you ought to know, right? 
And those are actual requirements from your parents. Luther has a statement that's somewhat similar to Calvin's, not in this passage, but he warns about a danger that he sees on the horizon as a possibility. And he warns about it back in the 1500s, of course. And today, 500 years later, the danger is, has reared its head in a terrible way. Here's, here's what he says. He says, there, is neither, there neither is forgiveness of sins without repentance, nor can forgiveness of sins be understood without repentance. It follows that if we preach the forgiveness of sins without repentance, that the people imagine that they have already obtained the forgiveness of sins, becoming thereby secure and without compunction of conscience. Compunction of conscience is like when you think maybe you've done something wrong, you feel it in your conscience. And he says, this would be a greater error and sin than all the errors hitherto prevailing. All the other errors hitherto prevailing are all of the errors that Calvin and Luther were both concerned about, the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. He says, but if we, if we preach the forgiveness of sins without repentance, then everybody's going to think they've already gotten forgiveness. And how many times I've seen this as I, as I preach and as I interact with people, and I think to myself as I, as I preach in the jail, and all of these men have heard the, the gospel proclaimed. They've heard the, the forgiveness of sins declared, right? Over and over and over again. But if they ever heard of any necessity of repentance, or are they just told, Jesus accepts you just the way you are? He loves you just the way you are and, and you're forgiven. If you, just, if you just come to him. Well, coming to him. Yeah, I mean, are, are all those statements true? Does Jesus love you just the way you are? Well, depends on what you mean, right? Is godliness heterosexuality? Well, it depends on what you mean. Are you, trying to, are you trying to scourge the truth? Are you trying to abuse it to make it mean something that it doesn't mean? What is your motivation? Pilate's motivation is what? Pilate's motivation, he wants to release Jesus, What's his motivation? I mean, that's a good goal, right? Is that a good goal? He wants to release Jesus instead of crucify him. Is that a good goal? Absolutely, it's a good goal. But what is his motivation? Fear. Fear. 
You see it all, you see it written all over this passage. Every little bit of interaction that Pilate has, it's tainted by that fear that he has, isn't it? He is afraid. Not of his sins and the consequences of his sins. He is afraid of man. He is afraid of losing the power and authority that he has. Just like the, just like the Pharisees are afraid of losing their influence and power and authority. So Pilate is afraid. He does not fear God. Even, even though when he says, you know, it says... Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. <laughs> Rightfully so. Right? But he doesn't fear God. His fear is driving him. His fear is driving him to the goal that is technically a good goal. But his goal is corrupted just like his means are corrupted. They go hand in hand. Releasing Jesus is a good goal, but it is not the goal, right? And in this sense, I can say that, yes, you know, heterosexuality is a good goal, but it is not the goal. And that's the best That's the best sense of understanding godliness is not heterosexuality, right? It is not legal, but it is a goal. Jesus' release is a good goal, but Pilate, to have the correct goal, he has to, what? He has to worship Jesus. That's the the true goal. The true goal of every Christian is not just that Jesus wouldn't be too maligned by us, wouldn't wouldn't receive too much abuse on his name because of our behavior. The true goal of the Christian is that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, That's what Pilate's ultimate goal needed to be. And so his ultimate goal was wrong, even as he sought something good. And therefore, his motivations were totally improper, and the fruit of it was wickedness. And it's the same with the Jews. We have a law they seek to defend. And yet, is that, their ultimate, is that to be their ultimate goal, to defend this law? No, that's not their ultimate goal. Their ultimate goal is to have an appropriate, right relationship with the Messiah. The fruit is bad. Their ultimate goal is bad. The means are bad. They're using by the hands of wicked men, right? They put the Son of God to death. That's how Peter talks about it in Acts. Their means are bad. And and so it is with us. If we do not have proper ultimate goals, yes, we will have all kinds of good goals, but they'll be corrupted by our motivations. They'll be corrupted 
by our fear. Our fear of man will lead us to say wicked things. We cannot serve two masters. If we seek to serve God, then we will have the same desire as his desire. And that is a beautiful thing. He will give us his Holy Spirit and we will, we will pray the Lord's Prayer and we'll be answered by him. And we won't just be talking about making sure we get our daily bread. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when that's, our, when, when that's what we're seeking, we'll see it. We'll see our prayers answered. And it will, it will be through the valley of the shadow of death. It will be like Stephen, through persecution, like Paul, through persecution, like Peter and John, through persecution, like Jesus, through persecution, right? But we won't fear man. A thousand may fall by your side, ten thousand at your right hand but it shall not approach you. Let's pray.